The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's bow our heads in prayer again, shall we, this morning? Father, it is, uh, it is wonderful to be here. It's great to see the faces of your church, of my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. So often throughout the week, all I see is the brow up of coworkers and strangers, and, and that is a wearisome thing in itself. So it is a joy to see and to embrace um, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know that is shared. So I thank you, God, uh, for this time, and, and I thank you for uh, just the, the, the songs lifted and the powerful lyrics sung to you and hearing the saints Seeing the song of redeemed, even as we hear creation happening and feeling and hearing the wind blow, um, there, there is no greater song than the song of the redeemed to sing for all eternity. So we rejoice in that. And, and Father, now as we um, settle in to, to listen, uh, to receive from our God, a God who, who speaks just like you spoke over the mercy seat to the high priest. God, you speak through us, or through us, through Christ in your word now. This is the living and abiding word of God. It is breathed out by you, and it is alive. And we believe that, and we are needing it, God. We need it every day. We've been nourished with food this morning, breakfast, but that only sustains a few hours. God, we need manna from heaven. We need the bread of life. And so I ask that we would partake this morning as a church family. Holy Spirit, that you would command our attention upon the very words of God that bring life. Speak through me as you have imparted a word upon my heart. I ask that it would be shared that together we would uh, multiply thanksgiving and, uh, and just a work of your spirit, even as Ben prayed, to, to further along in our own holiness and in our own sanctification, but also in the propagation um, of the gospel and seeing more and more lives transformed, more souls saved and coming under the delight, the joy of having Christ rule in their heart to live for his kingdom, for his glory. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we'll have a seat. I'm going to have to go. So even as we hear those songbirds, it, it makes me think of Psalm 65.8. Has anyone read that recently? Psalm 65, 8. There's one passage. I can read the whole, the whole passage, but it, this one verse says you, uh, well, it's 8, verse 8. It says, you make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. And, and just what, what a great verse that is and how true it is. I mean, the manifold works of God, his wondrous deeds in creation. You make the going out of the morning and the evening shout for joy. And for me, recently, like, well, not recently, almost every spring, this time of year, it's like, and how, right? Um, when the days are long and, and the, the, light, the, the morning's starting like at 4 a.m., it's as if there's a, a chorus of songbirds at the, the window of your, of your bedroom, and they're just like blasting through this chorus, waking you up, long before my alarm is supposed to go off. I'm like, I'm just not ready to get up yet. And yet the birds have me up. It happens. It just explodes. And, and it's, it's, it's kind of a combination of like, ah, uh, but then at times, even when I'm starting to get sturdy early on, I actually love it. There's a part of me that just really 
loves it, truth be told. In fact, you know, it's that early on, it's not a blasting that starts off. It's that, that little chirp of a bird that you first hear. You know, as the night sounds are, are quieting out, I wonder what that first bird is thinking. Like, when is the time I'm going to do this? Like, you know, when is that moment? And then chirp, and then chirp, chirp, and then more come added to it, and it just builds, and it's, it's lovely. It is just so Lovely, and, and, and I marvel how it, it coincides with the rising of the sun. It's like as that sun is, is coming up, so that song just starts to raise and build until it sounds like that explosion in the window where that bursts through, through your earplugs. So I truly love it. You know, I marvel at, at God's creation, the shouting for joy in the morning and the evening, as with the sunrise, though, and I believe that chiefly is the shouting of the joy in that verse when I look at that. I think it's the sunrise at the start of the dawn of a new day and the sun setting is that shout of the evening as the day is going out. You know, from, and right in between, you know, God's, I love both of those kind of bookend a day in God's creation, right? A bookend, you know, and, and and God's creation sings glory 24-7 from, from the growing and the producing, that what's, what's happening right now in the daylight hours, uh, the earth bringing forth its, its increase uh, to the endless variety of, of crazy cloud formations, though we have none today, but every day there's just always a constant change, and, and it's just beautiful. And so throughout the day, it's just glorious. And, and the manifold activities of night and the stars that shine forth upon it, proclaiming his handiwork, I mean, it just doesn't stop. There's, there's no book that can contain the wonders of God's creation. There's not a moment in the day that does not, in some shape or form, herald the greatness of our God, of its creator. Of all these moments, though, the one I like the most is the morning. I really do. There's just, I have a night's rest, you know, my mind and my body are refreshed, unless you're like Jason and woke up at, for a call, but normally that's the case, right? You're just, you're refreshed and, and you have that quiet time with the Lord, you know, and I, and I see and hear creation awake to the start of this new day. I love it. I love it. I love how the colors of the skies are as the sun is rising, they're always different from day to, from day, to day and, and throughout the seasons. Like even in the winter, it's just a different sky in the winter than it is right now. It's great that, that morning stare time, you know, as you're just kind of still waking up and your faculties are coming to life. It's, I just stare. I stare and watch it. Um, and I do love all parts of, of the day, but that is my favorite and, and most notably so. Because it was at the rising of the sun that the sun of righteousness had risen from the grave. The sun of righteousness had risen from the grave at sunrise. And we are blessed this morning with an account of this rising in the Gospel of Mark. And as with the rising of the sun, which brings forth the dawn of a new day, so also... The rising of the sun, you know, the sun of righteousness brings with him the dawn of something new. And Mark will give us three considerations this morning. Three considerations of this this morning. The first dawn revealed in the passage is simply the dawn of a new day as seen through the lives of women who remain courageously faithful to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The dawn of the new day through these ladies. So let's go ahead and read those again briefly, verses 1 through 3. So when the Sabbath was passed, we have Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, who bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, so very early, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Which is a good question, right? So you can picture that scene. These women are going there. They have their preparations, and they're, they're thinking about this. Like, how is this going to happen? And quite steadily now, we have, we have seen the prominence of women in the account of Jesus' crucifixion. 
They followed him to Jerusalem, remember? You know, these women are committed. When the disciples fled, when they were all scattered, Peter denied the Lord. It was women, save the apostle Paul, but it was women who stood close by at the foot of the cross while Jesus was being crucified. And it was women also who followed closely to see where he was buried. That's where they, they were the ones who knew where to go because they followed to see where he was buried. Ben spoke on that last week. And it was women who come here, as the text states, to serve our Lord Jesus at the dawn of this new day, who they expected to, to see lying in a tomb. And it would be them who we will soon see who were to be given the first message of his resurrection. That there is no longer, that he is no longer in the tomb, but is risen from the grave. And this is during a time when, when women's credibility was, was low, you know, very low. And, and God's word, as we keep seeing, testifies to the worth, the dignity of women. And as, it, as we approach on, on their service to the Lord, which is the point, I do want to pause and just consider. In a day and age today, when confusion and perversion over gender in ways, you know, honestly, not many years ago, I never would have imagined possible. Possible. But the confusion and the perversion not only exists today, but is celebrated. Heartbreakingly so, it is celebrated. And the state our world is in on this topic matter May we simply celebrate God's clarity that his word provides on his creation of man, making them male and female. He who created them created man, a human, a living being. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. That's crystal clear. The Bible's beautifully crystal clear. And the complementary biblical view is just so balanced and beautiful for men and women on his creation of male and female. The Bible recognizes the intrinsic value of both male and female, and it doesn't elevate one over the other. God's word makes clear the respective roles he designed for men and women, and they don't, they don't compete with each other. Rather, they complement each other. And when operating as such, they, they bolster much strength and joy to be shared. Amen? And this is not exclusive in marriage, mind you. Things that man neglect, as in the account here that we just read, things that men often neglect, women don't. I mean, husbands will attest to this. Things that are not on my radar, my wife is tuned into. And a healthy society has men and women who are operating together in a complementary way for the good of both. God's word is, is not fuzzy on how a man or a woman is to live, whether single or married. Christ is the chief example, or as the chief example, was single all his life. And though clearly around women often, right, day in and day out, single all of his life, around women all the time, Jesus lived that in all purity and devotion to God. And it says in Hebrews chapter 4, 15, Jesus, our high priest, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who in every respect was tempted or has been tempted as we are yet without sin, See where I'm going? Jesus, being served by these women here, and who was around women regularly, remained sexually pure. Remained sexually pure. He was pure. He was able to 
live that single, devoted life to God and enjoy the, the virtues, the, the, the presence, the company, the service of women. That's our Savior. And he also is known as the bridegroom to the church, right? His bride, whom he laid down his life for, loves her perfectly, sacrificially. I mean, he is, he is the epitome of what men are to aspire to exemplify in their lives, whether they're single or married. Christ is the mark for both. Similarly, God's word gives clear, concise instruction, along with Christ-like examples of, of what a woman who fears the Lord is to be, whether single or married. Take, for instance, the very, the very glorious but also intimidating passage on the woman who fears the Lord in Proverbs 31. You know, it, does, it, it opens with an excellent wife. Like, who can find? But a woman doesn't all of a sudden attain these qualities in Proverbs 31 once married, right? No, the passage is speaking of a woman who fears the Lord, which is how the passage concludes. And if she is to marry, she would indeed be an excellent wife. And I'd like to go ahead and read that passage. It's just, it's worthy of our time this morning. Proverbs 31 is 10 through 31. Go ahead and turn there. Our one turn for this morning will be this Proverbs. As we celebrate God's clarity on, on who a man is to be and who a woman is to be. Verse 10. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor, and she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. When she sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruits of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. A glorious, crystal clear description of a woman who fears the Lord, single or married. And intimidating, no doubt, to women because of what she's ascribed with, right? I mean, what man is not himself intimidated by the lineup of the attributes listed? I reckon that every woman who looks upon this passage thinks, at least to some degree, like, I can't live up to that. 
But that doesn't mean it's not the mark to aspire to, right? Similarly, single men are to singularly love and be devoted to God as Christ loves, or excuse me, as Christ exemplified. And if married, are to also be husbands who love their wives as Christ loves the church. Now, there is something I fail at often. But nevertheless, ought to aspire and strive to do so each and every day, right? So we agree then, and we celebrate the clarity of God's word. And we have before us these women who demonstrate these qualities, these attributes. The Mark mentions by name three of them here in the text. We know by fill-in from the other Gospels, who, who all include this account, mind you, all four include this account, that there are at least five total, at least five women who are going to the tomb. At the dawn of this new day, these upwards of at least five women, they teach us all something exemplary. At the dawn of a new day, they rise. They rise to fulfill plans for this new day in service to Jesus. I mean, that's, that's what they're doing, right? Serving Jesus. The Sabbath had passed. They purchased, they purchased these items to anoint the body, the corpse of Jesus, as was the custom of one who's dead and, and buried and soon to decay. That's what they're doing. They're going there to anoint the body. It's, it's good and it's proper to do. They remain courageously faithful to serve the Lord even in this very dark hour of sadness. I mean, they are distraught at this point. Absolutely distraught. But they remain courageously faithful. Which is what we are to do. To serve Jesus. You know, not just, not just on special occasions. Not just on, on a Sunday. Not only when we, we, we feel like it. No, as his servants, we are to serve Jesus and delight in doing so. And this begins at the dawn of a new day. You know, whatever our day consists of, the awaiting of it ought to come under the, the banner of serving our king. At the rise of the dawn of a new day, even if that is far past the rising, you know, the breaking of the sun through the horizon, which is all fine and well, whenever the start of our day begins... Following the example of these women who fear the Lord, started off with the outlook to serve Jesus. Colossians 3, 23-24, whatever you put your hands to do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, these women are clearly serving Jesus himself, right? But God's word says that in whatever. And whatever means whatever and whomever. This service is colorblind. It doesn't matter who it is you're serving. Because you're not serving them alone. You're doing the service, the love, the care in serving Jesus. It's all in service to Jesus. Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. It's all for him. And do it heartily, you know, with, with unction, with joy, with thankfulness, full effort. You know, do it to great degree. Begin your day with Jesus. And he will, he will nourish and equip you from his word, along with the supply of the strength of his spirit to serve him, which is just a, a free and unpredictable adventure. I mean, it really is. I know you guys can attest to that. Like, the unexpected happens. There's a moment to, like, I did not foresee this event to take place in my day, and I am sharing the gospel, or I am serving someone, or whatever it is. It's unpredictable, but the start of it starts with him. Being filled with his word and with his spirit to do so. And I appreciate some of the impulsiveness, impulsiveness seen by these women here. 
who are serving Jesus, but are not really sure how to, how to go all about it, right? I mean, women going out without a complete plan, right in the middle of verse 3, who's going to roll the stone away for us? That's kind of a, a problem. If they want to wrap Jesus or annoy him, it was a very large stone. They're not going to be able to do it. Kind of sounds like ministry in many ways, wouldn't you say? You know, the Spirit of God must be at work. Otherwise, all well-intended efforts are in vain. Ben prayed that this morning. Unless the Spirit is working, that stone is not going to go away. Well-intended, good preparations made, but the Spirit of God must be at work. This is early in the morning. This detail of theirs was not figured out yet, <clears throat> yet, and yet they are on their way to the tomb. <laughs> it doesn't stop them. They're on their way to the tomb. And once again, courageous faithfulness are, is seen by these women. They have a plan. They are as prepared as they can be, items in hand, and despite these real obstacles being in their way, they move forward. And it's a, it's a challenging example to us as to what God calls us to in service to him. That doesn't mean you, you don't go. If you have an obstacle and you are prepared and God, it's clear that this is a service to Jesus, there is that step of faith, like Peter stepping out of the boat, right? Depending upon the work of the Spirit to establish our plans to fulfill his purposes. It's faith. It's moving forward, trusting in him, and having those honest conversations. Like, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I'm still going forward. We have testimonies of this here. It's beautiful, and it's scriptural. I appreciate these women's example who seek to serve the Lord, seek to serve him who is crucified. And notice with me what happens as a result. What happens as a result? The unexpected. The unexpected. They, they encounter the unexpected. As it was with those who, or as it is with those who, who rise with hearts and minds set out to fulfill plans of the dawn of a new day, plans in service to Jesus, on that trajectory, we ought to be ready to encounter the unexpected. You know, good Works that God has prepared beforehand from eternity past that never ceases to blow my mind away. These good works that God has prepared from eternity past that we should walk in them, specifically made for each and every one of his children, serving the purposes of God in our generations. It says that about David even. When Paul is preaching at one of his points in, in, in Acts 13, he talks about David who fulfilled God's purposes in his generation. David is not a standalone. We all have purposes of God waiting for us to fulfill in our generation. Whether it be me or you, Travis, or you, Benjamin, your generation, good works in the days that we are living here to fulfill. And the unexpected is going to happen. If you have that mindset moving forward in your day where you are able to participate with him, which is amazing, participate with him in giving, contributing, contributing efforts towards the building of his eternal kingdom. We have a lot of people working on house projects, right? I'm one of them. And we enjoy seeing the progress and the change, but it's all going to start eroding and need maintaining. That's just a factor of life. But the working with God, participating with him and these works that he's prepared beforehand for you to do and contributing effort toward the building of his eternal kingdom that nothing can shake down, nothing can destroy, that's worth giving effort towards. That is so worth giving effort towards and not to miss out on whatever aspect I can contribute to the praise of, our, of my God, of our God to be able to work with God. So with ready service, in a ready service mode, which is a great, ask, you know, kind of a mindset for each day, in ready service mode to serve Jesus, the unexpected happens. 
And in the case of these women, they encounter the dawn of a new era. They encounter the dawn of a new era. And the first notice of it, this is our second point, the first notice of it, this dawn of a new era, is, seen, is seeing the very large stone rolled away. Like, that was a miracle. Like, how did that happen? They see it's gone. They were just talking about it. The stone they were just discussing, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? As that is being discussed, let's pick up in verse 4. What do they say? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Continue in verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. This is not what they were expecting to see. Let alone not expecting to see the stone rolled away, but to see the tomb empty. Maybe not empty, because there's a young man there sitting, not the body of Jesus lying. And you've got to picture this, this tomb, right? This is not a typical trench grave, but it was an expensive burial place where the deceased would be laid on a, on a bed that's cut into the rock within the tomb so that once the, the body decayed, they would, the, they would take the bones off this, this bedrock, or this bed cut into the rock, and they would place it elsewhere in the tomb so that the bed could be reused. Okay? This is why the borrowed tomb was widely recognized as belonging to the family of Joseph of Arimathea. The bed could be reused by other deceased family members whose bones ultimately would all reside together in the tomb. Okay? So picture this as like a small cave-like which you were able to walk into. That's why it says they enter the tomb and, and Peter enters the tomb and one of them stoops down, you know. It's like a cave you can walk into and there's this, this, this bed that's cut into the rock. And if this was used over generations, there would be maybe boxes that held other parts of the deceased family members from past generations and they would all be together. That's what this looks like. So these women, they enter this, this tomb, and the expression on their faces must have painted a picture of a thousand words to the young man sitting on the right side of the bed where Jesus' body laid. I mean, they expected to see Jesus' body lying there. And instead, this young man in a white robe, who is clearly an angel and, and one of two, as the other gospel accounts make known, that there's actually two located on either end, of the bed, one at the foot and one at the head, which is very pictorial of the cherubim in the tent of meeting who are located on either end of the mercy seat. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, that was on top of the ark, at which place God would meet with the high priest and speak, audible voice speak with him, all about that he would give in commandment for his people. That once a year, that's where the high priest went, to that mercy seat. God would audibly speak as he atones for the people, the unintentional sins. He would speak. The high priest would enter the inner chamber, the most holy place, once a year to, to atone for the sins of Israel, sprinkling blood from the sacrifice on the mercy seat, at which place also he would receive commandment from God <clears throat> audibly speaking the commandment for the people of Israel. This, wow. I mean, something, if, if the priest didn't do it as he was instructed, it would result in his death. As Ben noted last week, last Sunday, and my daughter as well as we were discussing this very thing, this was terrifying and wonderful at the same time, Right? <clears throat> Terrifying and wonderful. Terrifying because they could drop dead if they did not reverently perform these duties properly as instructed. And wonderful, wonderful because they could literally meet with God who spoke with them from the cloud that dwelt on the mercy seat, representing his presence. How wonderful. What a privilege for the high priest to have that. The same voice that spoke from the mountain, remember from Sinai, and they asked Moses to, enter, you know, to get between them. They thought they were going to die. High priest was able to speak, receive commandment. 
to go beyond the veil, the veil that God, remember, tore from top to bottom just a couple days back at the death of Jesus, the curtain glancing back, if, if you'd like to, to verse 38 to 15, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, the curtain that separated the most inner chamber from the outer chamber. And now the stone, right? The stone at the dawn of this new day, the stone is rolled away for these women to freely enter. Enter and see where God's sacrifice was laid. Angels overshadowing from end to end the place where his body laid, as did angels over the mercy seat. And Mark notes only one angel on the right side, and perhaps that's because they were, it was the first one they saw, and they're, they're looking at the, where the head would have been laid, and they just didn't see the one on the left. Not to mention the utter shock that they were in, being entirely expecting to see the body of Jesus. I mean, focus kind of diminishes when you're in that state, right? Just kind of delirious, like, what's going on? They just saw the one at first. And furthermore, that was not the thing to be focused on. I mean, look what the angel says. The angel clearly seeing the women in this frantic state as they come in goes right to the heart, goes right to the heart of what has taken place. He doesn't even introduce himself. We get that often in the in scripture. They, I'm Gabriel. I'm what, it just, he just gets right to it. Verse 6, what does he say? He said, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? He has risen. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, is now risen. He is not here. The dawn of a new era has begun. Jesus the Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come. Have. Have come. The dawn of a new era. The good Things that have come through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with, with hands, that is, of this creation, but heaven itself. He entered once for all into the holy places to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, not by means of, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal an eternal redemption. He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And after doing so, he sat down, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. At which place, listen, at which place? It's not a high priest like it was here on earth, that enters into the inner courts to meet with God at the mercy seat of this creation, to intercede on behalf of the people once a year. But Jesus, as our high priest, entered into heaven itself and sat down at the mercy seat in heaven, if you will, right? He sat down on the mercy seat of heaven if you will, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God to intercede to the Father, Father continually, continually, and not once a year, but continually on our behalf. It's the dawn of a new era that has begun. Jesus does away with the first covenant, the Mosaic law, with its priesthood, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, and the ritual duties, which was a shadow. It was a shadow of the good things to come that have come. They're here now. In order to establish... Even they're excited about it, okay? In order to establish, establish the second, the second, the, 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 the dawn of this new area, the second covenant, we have been sanctified through the body of Jesus Christ, the offering his body once and for all. And because of this, we are able, you know, the curtain is torn, the stone is rolled away, both by God. We are able to confidently enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, the dawn of a new era, perfecting for all time those who are being sanctified, the born-again follower of Jesus Christ. 
He, Jesus, as the, the mediator of a new covenant. Okay, that's, that's what's just taken place here. That's what, that, you know, that's what we've just gone through. He enters into heaven itself to make a way for us to meet with God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. This is that new era that we are in with our hearts sprinkled, with a clean, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, the dawn of a new era. An era in which God will put his laws on our hearts and writes them on our minds, where he remembers our sins and our lawless deeds no more. He separates them from us as far as the east is from the west. Promises of the new covenant we inherit through faith in Jesus Christ. We patiently await his return when all that we have now in this new era through faith is fully revealed. You know, the, the outcome, obtaining the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, he rises on this day, rises from the grave in, in fulfillment of the beginning of a new era. Much is the same of one who is born again, right? Much is the same as one who is born again, who, is, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of the Spirit of God, where the Spirit of Christ takes up residence in your heart, of one who is dead in their sins and brings new life. This is the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. A a Christian, by definition, is truly a new creation. A born-again person is one who awakes to this dawn of a new era. They awake to it, an era as now being a part of God's kingdom. They weren't before. They were not before, but now they are. And they're operating from that realm the remaining of their days until they arrive to be a home with him. That's what takes place. As Ben spoke last week on baptism, you know, we're going to be likely doing that soon. And how this is a glorious outward illustration of this miracle work of God in a person's heart. A picture of one that is dead and buried and rising to new life. It's a glorious picture taking place within. Raised to new life by the powerful working of God. And I think it was Ben years ago who talked about the analogy of the bloated corpse in the water. Do you guys, anyone remember that analogy? I got a smile there. The bloated corpse lying face down in the water. Like they're not, help me, help me. No, they're just like this. Just floating. Lifeless and helpless until God reaches down to rescue and bring new life to them. Okay? I thought that was great. And as accurate as it is, I think Scripture takes it even further. I think the prophet Ezekiel takes it even further, doesn't he? When the hand of the Lord was upon him, and he was given that vision of the valley of dry bones. A valley of dry bones, very dry is what it says. In fact, not just dry, but very dry. And God asks Ezekiel, he says, can these bones live? (laughs) Ezekiel answers, uh, Lord, you know. You know, that's, that's a good answer. That's a good response. I like it. But what follows is Ezekiel prophesying over them as God told him to do, and they indeed come to life. The bones kind of just rattle, and they start coming together and, and forming into bodies, and, and then the, the sinew takes shape on them. And then the flesh, and it's followed by the skin, but they're not complete yet. What comes last? The breath. The breath of God. The breath of God is sent. His spirit comes upon these, these bones that are now together as bodies, but not alive yet. The breath of God comes, and at that moment, they come to life. That is how much life we have in us to the washing of the... And, Prior, excuse me, that is how much life we have in us prior to the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Prior to being born again, we are that dead, very dry bone dead in our trespasses and sin before God makes us alive together in Christ. 
It's a dawn of new beginnings. A dawn of new beginnings made possible because the Son of Righteousness has risen from the grave, and he's risen with healing in his wings. As Malachi says, he's risen with healing within his wings, which leads us to our third point, the dawn of new beginnings. The angel here, who's clearly given instruction by the Lord Jesus, by the risen Lord Jesus, before Jesus goes to Galilee, which we'll see, tells the fearful women in verse 7, the angel says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Go and tell. Tell who? Tell the disciples who abandoned him, who scattered, who fled. And tell the one who denied him three times. Tell them that Jesus Jesus is going before them to Galilee, just as he said he would. There you will see him, to see the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus, he gave this instruction to them, right? Back in in chapter 14, verse 28 of, of Mark, he gave this very instruction to them. He says, before, or excuse me, but after I am raised up, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Which, in this conversation he's happening when he says this, is immediately followed with Jesus Jesus responding to Peter's insistency that it would not happen, that it would not fall away. He goes, we will not fall away. Though the other disciples may fall away, I will not, says Peter. That happens in that same conversation. And Jesus responds, actually, Peter, you will deny me. You'll deny me, in fact, three times before the rooster crows twice. Jesus, steadfast as our healer, who rises the son of righteousness, rise with healing in his wings. Jesus, steadfast as our healer, he initiates. Isn't that glorious? He initiates the restoration of his disciples. He initiates that. And he mentions Peter by name. He didn't mention the other disciples. He mentioned the one that denied him three times. (laughs) Can you imagine how needful that was for Peter to hear? How needful that was for Peter to hear. I mean, the, the last interaction that Peter had with his Lord was catching his eye. Was catching his eye in the moment of denying him the third time. That was the last memory Peter has of the Lord Jesus. Denied three times his Lord, whom Peter exuberantly and emphatically said he was willing to die for. I mean, how how soothing the ointment of those words must have been for Peter. Like, like, just try and get in Peter's head, right? Like, he made a point. He made a point to mention my name. Like, he ensured that I was included. I, Peter, the one and the only one who denied him three times with increasing insistency, even after hearing the, the first crow of the rooster, which it should have been a warning sign to me, it wasn't. I just continued to escalate in how insistent I was that I did not know the man. I truly believe that Peter, or that Jesus knew that Peter needed that affirmation. He needed to know that he was loved anyway. That he was loved anyway. To be assured of his unconditional love. Church, Jesus' love for Peter 
same as ours. You know, it doesn't flicker. It didn't flicker at the, slide, the slightest when Peter denied him, and it doesn't flicker the slightest towards any one of his beloved, whom he laid down his life for. His heart breaks over sin, or certainly over this particular sin, same as it was, it does for our sin against him. It breaks, he weeps, it hurts. But his love is rock solid. His love is rock solid. It doesn't change. Peter needed to hear that he was loved anyway. And the disciples needed to hear this as well. Same as you and I, right? To know that we are loved anyway. He who knows our name, he knows the number of the hairs on our head, and he knows everything about us. He knows our our successes that we can only do because of him, but he knows every failure too. He knows every failure, and his love doesn't change. That's that agape love, the unconditional love. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, each and every one of us. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. Peter stated that he'd try or that he would. He didn't. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's that everlasting love. It's that everlasting love that sent Jesus on the rescue mission to save us. It's that everlasting love that held Jesus on the cross. It's that same everlasting love that in the presence of God, Jesus intercedes on our behalf. And it's that same love, that same everlasting love we can be assured of that he will never leave us or forsake us and that he will return one day to take us home where we will be with him forever. That love does not change. I mean, what shall we say to these things? We'll just join in with Paul when he's contemplating the realities of this amazing truth of God's love. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I mean, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's going to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's this everlasting love that will rightly cause you to tremble and be seized with astonishment as we see with the women in verse 8 who are beside themselves right now. They are beside themselves after seeing the empty tomb and hearing the news of the risen Lord Jesus who initiates the restoration with his disciples. They are beside themselves, the dawn of new beginnings And the women in this state, they just don't say a word to anyone until they share the message with the disciples and Peter, as they were instructed to. The Son of Righteousness has risen. Has he risen in your heart? Does the, does the dawn of your day begin with the outlook to serve the Lord Jesus in whatever you put your hands to?
has the dawn of a new era of life in Christ begun in you? I mean, do you know that he is in you? Does his, does his spirit bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? Can you say yes to that? Do you need a new beginning? Have you, have you denied the Lord? Have you, have you lost your first love? Have you rejected his counsel? Have you ignored his word? Have you sinned against him today, this morning? Jesus, the son of righteousness, heals and restores. There is healing with Jesus, true healing. Not not to be compared with anything the world will try to sell you, Only Jesus, only he is the remedy to all our sick problems, our sin-sick problems, and he's risen. He and he alone is the mediator of a new covenant between us and the Father, whom we can be confident to approach his throne of grace with full assurance of faith in Jesus that we will be forgiven and restored in our relationship with our Father in heaven. If there is a tug on your heart you're feeling right now, that perhaps that you feel right now is to go to him, to say, yes, I, I either can t- attest to one of those or I'm not sure that I'm your child. Like, I'm not sure I can say, yes, the Spirit of God testifies to that me, to that in me. Listen, that's him initiating the process. That is him initiating the process to receive healing from him. So don't resist. If there's any touch of that whatsoever, don't resist, but follow it. Yield to it and go to him whose everlasting love will never be separated from. He has you. He will keep you. And he will love you perfectly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I trust your your word, as your Holy Spirit would be applying. That there is penetration taking place. That there is a breaking through. That there is even illumination. The wonders of what Christ has done. I still ponder greatly just that scene of the high priest hearing the voice of God speak from that cloud, trembling for his life, but overwhelmed with wonder at the same time. But that was just once a year. And Jesus, you offered yourself. Your body was the offering, the sacrifice, and it was your blood that was shed, placed on the mercy seat. You entered heaven itself as our high priest so that by faith through you we can come continually even as I'm coming now in prayer and speak with you and commune with you and know that we are forgiven if there is sin that has come to mind that we are convicted of that we can confess and know that our sins are washed away that they are forgiven God, we thank you. We thank you for the life in Christ. We thank you for the gospel. And I do pray, as a church, as you know where each and every one is at, Holy Spirit, I pray you'll be pressing 
gently but persistently, that there would be a, a yielding, that there would be a, a work that, like these women who seek to serve the Lord Jesus who was crucified, that that same seeking, not seeking any counterfeits or any Jesus of, of their own making or of what the world would counterfeit, but the, the true risen Lord Jesus who was crucified, that they would seek you and walk in this newness of life, this, this being brought into your kingdom, this, this realm of, of, of being born of God. God, we thank you. I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.